notable regiments of the Imperial Guard. Imperial Guard armies are recruited from across the Imperium from the worlds of the Segmentum Pacificus in the west to the far-flung borders of the eastern fringe. When an army is assembled, regiments are drawn from nearby worlds, often many widely different planets. The result is a conglomeration of fighting styles and uniforms, rather than a single homogenous force. Once embroiled in a static war zone, these differences are eroded as old equipment is replaced and troops adopt clothing and tactics appropriate for the environment. The influx of reinforcements drawn from distant worlds makes the appearance of the army even more varied. Each world in the Imperium supplies troops to the Departmento Munitorum for incorporation into the Imperial Guard. As there are approximately a million worlds in the Imperium, the variety of uniforms, fighting styles and levels of equipment can hardly be imagined. However, there are some very large planets which provide particularly vast forces, and a regiment from such a world might constitute almost an entire army. The proximity of some worlds to established areas of fighting also means that they contribute more significantly to the Imperial Guard than others. The regiments described here represent a selection of the most famous and important of the Imperial Guard's forces. There are thousands more, each different to some degree. Some equally renowned and just as important. Katachan, man, has lived upon Katachan longer than Imperial records can recall. The scout probes of the first colonists found a planet which looked deceptively green and fertile from the safety of orbit. When the giant colony ships crash-landed, the pioneers inside awoke from cryogenic slumber to find themselves marooned upon one of the most inhospitable places in the galaxy. Katachan is a death world, perhaps the most notorious and dangerous of all the death worlds in the Imperium. Its jungles are home to some of the most predatory animals and plants ever encountered by man. The first settlers survived by the merest chance, holed up inside the wreckage of their spacecraft, besieged by the living jungle around them. Undoubtedly, many died. Only the hardiest, quickest, and luckiest never survive on a death world. The planet's few scattered settlements are fortresses, surrounded by barren bedrock, where the soil has been blasted bare to provide clear lines of fire. Even so, buildings never last long on Katachan. Lichens soon take root upon any surface, secreting a potent acid which crumbles even the most solidly constructed defences. Strangle vines creep a hundred metres in a single night, and their constricting grip can crush a plasteel bunker or smash a tank like an eggshell. The people of Katachan must constantly build and rebuild. Wherever they construct their settlements, the jungles grow more densely and become increasingly aggressive. Even the wild creatures of Katachan gather to repel the invaders. It is as if the whole planet were determined to rid itself of human intrusion, just as the immune system of a human being reacts to some invasive virus. Sooner or later, humans must abandon their homes and resettle on another site, beginning their struggle against the jungle afresh. The people of this unique world are moulded by a life of constant battle. Children learn to shoot before they can walk. Only those who can shoot fast and straight ever reach adulthood. Outside the fragile domes, a world wars against its human inhabitants. Every living thing on Katachan is inimical to human life. Every creature is a carnivore. Every plant is poisonous. 
Some plants secrete a deadly pollen that saturates the air and invades filter systems. Other types of vegetation release sticky sap, which holds a creature fast and slowly dissolves its flesh. A few large trees even emit poisons into the ground, killing surrounding plants and creating a slimy acid bog, which entraps anything foolish enough to venture near. The native creatures are even more dangerous than the plants. The multi-legged Katachan devil, with its segmented body and snapping jaws, is as big as a tank and capable of battling even the notorious shambling mammoths of the volcano lands. Few humans grow old on Katachan, and those that survive the longest retain an instinct for self-preservation unrivaled anywhere in the galaxy. The Katachan Regiment Like all worlds in the Imperium, Katachan is required to provide troops for the Imperial Guard. The people of Katachan live amongst dense and dangerous jungles, which are altogether alien to most of the hive-dwelling citizens of the Imperium's larger planets. When it comes to jungle fighting, the Katachan Regiment has no equal, and the Imperial Guard recognise their supremacy in this type of warfare. During the jungle wars on Epsion Octarius, the Katachan Regiment survived for nearly 40 days amidst grottolid-infested mangrove swamps before reaching the Orc Gargan construction site of Grubnax Drops. On that occasion, the savagery of the jungle fighters so impressed the Death Skull Orc Warlord that he ordered his Gargans to be painted in green jungle stripes with red bandanas in imitation of the Katachan jungle fighters' uniform. Whether he did this out of respect for his enemies or in the hope that some of the jungle fighters' skill would rub off on his Gargan fighting machines is uncertain. Jungle fighters wear the green combat gear that is everyday costume for the people of Katachan. Their clothing is perfectly suited to fast-moving warfare amidst steaming jungles. Combined with the red bandana, this rough but practical costume passes as the regiment's uniform. Valhalla The planet of Valhalla was once a temperate paradise of forests and broad, fertile plains. There is no record of its settlement, but legends recall a world ripe for colonisation and development. Its people spread across the world and prospered. The planet's main land masses were distributed more or less evenly, one centred at the northern pole and the other at the south. The equatorial regions themselves were dominated by a huge, warm ocean 11,000 miles wide. Approximately 10,000 years ago, Valhalla was struck by a comet of immense size and weight. The planet's defence lasers poured shot after shot into the comet. This did nothing more than break off several smaller fragments of what proved to be virtually solid iron. A mile-wide fragment struck the northern continent, causing massive earthquakes and destruction. But the main comet body landed in the sea. At first, the confusion and devastation made it hard to gauge the full effect of the strike. The boiling seas, clouds of vapour and pall of dust cut off the light. Temperatures plunged to freezing over the whole planet. Even more significantly, the impact had knocked the whole planet from its orbit. For ten years, Valhalla spun eccentrically until it finally settled some 15 million miles further from its sun. By then, the planet was a very different place indeed. Ice World Valhalla had become a frozen world of ice. The survivors of the disaster found themselves pushed further and further towards the equatorial oceans as glaciers engulfed the polar continents. Eventually, there was no more land left, 
and they were forced to live upon the ice itself. Though 99% of all life had been destroyed, the people struggled through, building their cities deep inside the ice, beneath the glaciers and upon the frozen ocean. What little life remained, they carefully cultivated, growing nutrient slimes and algaes in vats heated by thermal stills. Fate had dealt the world a cruel blow, but it had not finished with Valhalla. Just as the threat of starvation seemed to be receding, another equally dangerous foe appeared. Orcs came in their thousands, their damaged space fleet blown upon the winds of the warp to the ice world. Finding little to sustain even their undemanding appetites, the orcs launched themselves upon the Valhallans with a ferocity sharpened by hunger. It was a fight for survival. The orcs were marooned, and the only food on the whole planet lay inside the cities of the Valhallans, the precious organic cultures, and the inhabitants themselves. The fighting raged throughout the subglacial cities of the Valhallans. The thermal stills which rose above the ice were easy targets for the orcs. But the green-skinned creatures ignored them and battered their way through the thick plastil shutters that protected the access tunnels to the ice cities. Yelling their foul war cries, the orcs charged downwards instead, right into the heart of the cities. The fighting raged through the galleries and tunnels of Valhalla. The defenders knew every inch of their frozen domain, every gallery and shaft, and they made good use of their familiarity in each encounter. As the orcs fought their way inwards, they found themselves constantly ambushed or led unwittingly into dead ends where tunnels would be collapsed behind them. By the sixth week of fighting, the orcs had reached the main food chamber with its hundreds of nutrient slime vats. Almost half the orcs had been killed, but the remainder were every bit as determined as ever. The scent of the bubbling green slime assailed their keen nostrils, and they licked their scaly lips in anticipation. The Valhallans prepared to put up a final resistance. If the chamber was captured, they would starve within a week. Every man, woman and child that could carry a gun crowded into the chamber and its surrounding galleries. The battle would decide which race would survive on Valhalla. The orcs attacked in a great mass. The green-skinned warriors were maddened with hunger and no longer seemed capable of rational thought. If the attack had been better planned, it might have succeeded. But as it was, the orcs were repelled, though at great cost. Almost half the defenders were slain or hurt. The orcs retreated and prepared for another rush. The second orc attack came in two simultaneous thrusts. The first was repelled easily, but this proved to be nothing more than a feint. The second was directed against a small side chamber, part of the nutrient packaging plant that adjoined the main production vats. The packaging plant eventually fell to the orcs, its defenders dared at their posts after exacting a heavy toll amongst the enemy. From their newly won position, the orcs rapidly moved reinforcements forward. The humans found themselves in a crossfire and were soon forced to give ground in the main chamber itself. The orcs were amongst the huge vats. There were pits hewn into the ground and filled with the sticky green algil slime. The raised sides of the pits provided cover for attacker and defender alike. The fighting intensified as the orcs struggled forward, pit by pit, and the humans gradually retreated or fell at their places. After three hours, the orcs had lost half their number, but had forced the Valhallans back against the ice wall. The defenders' prospects looked grim as they prepared for a fresh assault, determined to sell their lives as dearly as possible. 
as the orcs rose and howled their battle cry. A mighty explosion tore through the caverns. Ice pillars toppled and fell into the nutrient pools, and the floor heaved and broke under the orcs' feet. The Valhallans rose in their turn, and with an almighty scream fell upon their attackers. The orcs broke in confusion as fiery machines smashed through the floor and the broken cavern floor swam in a mixture of slime and green ichor. The Valhallans had won the day because their stiff resistance gave their engineers time to bore an ice shaft under the cavern floor. At the vital moment, the old ice burners, industrial machines used to form the sub-glacial chambers themselves, had been allowed to burst through and run amok among the orcs. The intensely hot burners, carried by their own high-pressure steam, had terrified the orcs. Those who did not run were badly burned or melted, and those who escaped were cut down by the vengeful Valhallans. Though the planet of Valhalla is no longer a populous or affluent world, the Valhallans are famous throughout the galaxy. After destroying the orcs on their own world, regiments of Valhallans joined with other Imperial Guard to rid many worlds of the orc invaders. Always the Valhallans fight with the same grim determination they displayed in the ice cities of their homeworld. In battle, their courage and tenacity earned them the respect of other regiments from all over the Imperium. Mordian In the long and sinister annals of the Inquisition, there are many tales of treachery and horror, of the destruction of worlds and the triumph of man's greed and foolishness. It is a record of human weakness and the power of the dark gods of chaos. Yet amongst that record of lost planets and mortal defeat... There are a few stories of human victory. Rare cases where the demonic army of chaos has been turned aside at the moment of success and driven back into the void from which it came. One such place is Mordian, the world of eternal night. The Mordian day is the same length as the Mordian year, the small planet turning upon its axis once each time it completes a circle of its sun. As a consequence, one side of Mordian is constantly burned by the fierce heat of the sun, whilst the other side lies in eternal darkness. The scorched side is lifeless and barren, a desert of splintered rock and canyons where mighty armies clashed during the Age of Apostasy many years ago. Non-Mordian, all life is on the dark side. The slow revolution of Mordian does little to stir its thick atmosphere, so the weather is constantly hot and still, with no natural breezes to move the oppressive air. In the sultry darkness, the Mordians go about their daily lives. Ancient and ruinous cities sprawl across the planet's dark surface. Pyramidal, multi-leveled towers reach for the sky and rise like mountains towards space. Hundreds of millions of people exist upon a land surface barely one-tenth the size of Earth. Mordian is a world that seethes with people, a crowded and dark world whose rulers, the Tetrarchs, must fight a constant battle against anarchy. Only the most careful hoarding of Mordian's resources keeps its massive population alive. All food, all clothing, all essential resources and supplies are strictly controlled, rationed and recycled. This enables the Mordians to survive, albeit with utmost effort, an inconsiderable impoverishment. 
Such harsh and demanding conditions naturally breed discontent. Few people really understand the predicament they or their planet is in. Others care nothing for their fellow men and seek only to accrue personal wealth and power regardless of the consequences. In the decaying multi-leveled cities, crime is rife. Gangsters and criminal warlords rule an underworld where life is cheap and where the desperate are merely pawns to be expended as their masters please. The Mordian Iron Guard stands between order and anarchy. They are the champions of the Tetrarchy of Mordian, uniformed in bright colours and fiercely loyal to their cause. Their enemies are all those who would divert the scant resources of Mordian or threaten its continued existence. They fight a constant battle against the criminal warlords of the Undercity, insane gangs of cannibals and misguided rabble-rousers who would sooner see universal destruction than endure the sacrifice necessary for the survival of the world. The Iron Guard are ruthless in pursuit of their enemies. Their discipline is legendary and their training is as rigorous as possible. All who fight in the Iron Guard understand full well the horror that would engulf their world if they were to fail in their duty. Their loyalty and determination is all that keeps Mordian from plague, starvation and savagery. The greatest threat to Mordian came one hot summer. The stifling heat was unusual, even for Mordian, and the planet seethed with unrest. Beneath the streets brooded a secret conspiracy that posed a threat far greater than any seen before. In the depths met a dark conclave, a group of men who knew the extent of Mordian's wealth and wanted it for themselves. Away from the sight of saner citizens, they made their incantations and called upon the dark gods of chaos. A spell was begun. It is impossible to say how much innocent blood was spilled to fuel their sorcery, or what sinister pledges were made to their dark masters. Those who cast the spell sought only personal enrichment. Their lust for power knew no bounds. They would destroy the planet itself if they had to. They cared no more for its teeming millions than did the Chaos Gods. The summer grew hotter as the spell neared its completion. Many strange things were reported in the capital. The cannibal mobs and criminal gangs were restless. Men saw winged monsters hovering in the city lights. People disappeared without a trace. At last, the spell was complete, and suddenly the world shook as its sky erupted into flame and disgorged the warlords of chaos itself. From the eye of terror, distorted and ugly spacecraft soared into Mordian skies to rain fire and destruction upon the world. Chaos space marines poured into the city, slaying all around in a great and bloody sacrifice to their gods. Demons stalked the burning towers and hunted the souls of those that fled from the devastation below. From their dark hiding places, the servants of chaos crawled to the surface to bathe in the fire and terror of the world, confident of their master's favour now that their work was done. As the sky exploded into flame, the tetrarchs of Mordian ordered their astropaths to send psychic calls for help. The power of chaos was so strong that the astropaths' minds melted with the effort. It was impossible for anyone to say whether the messages got through or if help was on its way. Meanwhile, the Iron Guard fought a gallant resistance against the demonic assault. While lesser men fled in terror before the might of chaos, the Iron Guard stood their ground, pouring volley after volley into the enemy ranks. At last, the Iron Guard captains were forced to give the order to withdraw. 
Though their men would stand until the end, they could achieve little against the hordes that opposed them. Reluctantly, the Iron Guard regrouped around the capital, abandoning the rest of the planet to the enemy. Whilst the forces of Chaos rampaged throughout Mordian, the Iron Guard prepared the capital's defences. Every building became a fortress, every tower a strong point, and every street and plaza a killing zone for the Iron Guard's carefully sighted weapons. At the centre lay the Tetrarchal Palace itself, from which the defence of the capital was coordinated. When the attack began, the Iron Guard was well prepared. Chaos Space Marines fell before their well-disciplined fire, as shot after shot struck their ranks. Channeled into well-prepared fire traps, the Chaos Space Marines were easily repelled, but far greater and more potent foes followed upon their heels. From the sewers and service ducts poured an army of those who would sold their souls to the Dark Gods. Clad in rags and armed with no more than iron bars and lengths of chain, they threw themselves upon the defenders. Driven by their insane devotion to chaos, they cared little if they lived or died, and thousands were cut down by the devastating weapons of the Iron Guard. Nevertheless, this attack from an unexpected source left the defenders unprepared for the next assault. The forces of chaos moved upon the Iron Guard with purpose. Demons and chaos space marines advanced as one. Bloodthirsters of corn roared a great challenge to chill mortal blood. Keepers of secrets stalked the battlefield, slaying those that dared to look upon them with a withering glare. Whirling horrors skipped and chattered in an eerie blur of incandescent power. It was a terrifying sight, yet the Iron Guard held firm before the onslaught, though many paid the ultimate price for their devotion. Street by street, building by building, the Iron Guard fell back into the heart of the city. Their lines drew tighter, but refused to break, as attack after attack was repulsed. When losses grew too heavy to endure, or as positions were outflanked and became untenable, the Iron Guard withdrew to another line, always preserving what they could of their men and weapons. It was a battle fought with all the tactical brilliance and discipline the best Imperial troops could hope for. Yet it was a battle the Mordians could not win. Eventually, they would have nowhere left to retreat to. As the last Iron Guard took position around the Tetrarchal Palace itself, the last strong point on the whole world, behind hastily constructed defences, the infantry waited for the inevitable attack. From their towers and ceremonial balconies, the barrels of las cannons and other heavy weapons glinted in the light of the burning sky. Suddenly, the horde of chaos was upon them, screaming and bellowing in its might. Greater demons of Nurgle strode clumsily amongst their minions, rising above them four or five times the height of a man, giants and lords of their foul kind. The bloated demons shuffled forward, putrid innards spilling over the ground. Nauseous gases bubbling from rents and tears in their leathery flesh. Besides them were the chaos space marines of their pestilent god, their armour green and rancid with decay, their rank bodies stiff with disease. Before them came a black cloud of flies which buzzed about the iron guard, crawling into their eyes and ears and filling their mouths with black, hairy bodies. The iron guard's lasguns spat a volley of death into the screaming horde, Again, the lasguns cracked with a single voice as the captains ordered shot after shot into the vile mass. 
From the Tetrarchal Palace came the chatter of autocannons, the angry scream of bolt guns and the piercing shriek of las cannons. With mechanical precision, the weapon crews loaded and fired, loaded and fired, never stopping for one moment or breaking their routine. Demon gore ran like a foul river in the once white square. But as one beast fell, another, twice as hideous, marched over its body towards the Iron Guard's position. The captains ordered their men back to the palace steps and formed a firing line. Their discipline intact. The Iron Guard prepared for a single volley before the forces of chaos fell upon them. Their final moment had come, though there were few left now to witness their inevitable defeat. Little could the defenders of Mordian know of the power or purposes of chaos. How could they imagine, as the hordes of chaos advanced upon them, that the chaos gods hold upon Mordian was but a tenuous one? The spell that had brought them to mortal space and imbued the flesh of their servants with physical energy was almost spent. The fires that burned in the sky were growing dim, and the bellows of demons echoed shallowly in the air. As the Iron Guard watched, their enemies dissolved before their eyes. The sky darkened to its customary blackness. In the dark, the guiding lights of Imperial spacecraft glittered amongst the stars. The Iron Guard had won not just a battle, but the most precious thing of all, time. From beyond the orbit of Mordian, Imperial psychers had wrought a counterspell to break the hold of chaos. Whilst the Iron Guard fought upon the planet, the separate battle of wills had raged between mortals and gods. Only the Iron Guard's heroic resistance had given the Psychers enough time to work their mystical abilities before Chaos won the planet for all time. Talan The world of Talan was once a fertile planet, bathed in the gentle orange light of its twin suns. Oceans, plains and lush jungles covered its surface, and its people prospered. All of this ended during the Horus Heresy. In a devastating surprise attack, the Iron Warrior's Chaos Space Marines struck the planet. Thousands of virus bombs rained down upon Talan, and the people ran to the Enviro shelters deep beneath the surface. And as they hid, safe from the devastating bio-infestation, the deadly coils of DNA mutated as they were programmed to do. Animals, plants, even insects died as the virus did its work, destroying the planet's ecosystem and leaving an empty shell. After seven weeks of isolation, the virus had run its course and the remaining people of Talan emerged upon the surface. They found a world covered with the acrid slime of plants and corpses not yet decayed, for the world was completely sterile, without even bacteria to aid the decomposition of its dead. The Iron Warriors sent their task force to repossess the world for the Dark Gods of Chaos. From underground bunkers, the Talon forces emerged to do battle with the invaders. Soon, reinforcements from both sides arrived, rival space fleets bringing vast armies to fight over the worthless remnants of the dead planet. The Battle of Talan raged for many months and was the largest armoured conflict of the Horus Heresy. Outbreaks of viral infection from rogue DNA residue made it almost impossible for infantry to operate outside their protective shelters. The battle was finally decided by armies of tanks. When the fighting ended, the empty, putrid wastes of Talan were littered with the wreckage of more than a million shattered vehicles. Chaos was driven from Talan at great cost. 
Yet for all the millions that died, there seemed little gain from the fight. The planet was destroyed and rendered useless for large-scale habitation, industry or agriculture. The armies of the Imperium might well have given up Talan, had their commanders realised the extent of the devastation. But once the armies were in motion, there was no going back. At the time, the Chaos Attack made little sense. It seemed insane that even the fickle gods of Chaos should expand such energy fighting over a devastated world of no particular strategic insignificance. But in the aftermath of the Horus heresy, there were few left to ponder such questions. Amongst the evils of the time, it was just another demonstration of the random destruction of chaos. Within a thousand years of the Horus heresy, Talan evolved into a very different world from the prosperous planet of former times. Deserts of sulfurous sand stretched from pole to pole, and all water disappeared, except for a thin residue in the atmosphere. No vegetation remained on the surface, exposed to the blistering, wind-blown sands. All that grew was the carefully husbanded crops of the Talan themselves, sheltered in their protective horticultural domes. The surviving Talan now lived in domed towns, or in natural caverns, hollowed out in the planet's rock. Fierce winds drove the Talan into their shelters. Corrosive sulphur storms made all travel risky, and eventually a system of tunnels was built to facilitate travel beneath the surface. Above their settlements, the Talan built vapour traps to catch water from the thin atmosphere. These tall towers still stand above their domes to this day, and all the water they use is caught by these cunning devices and channeled into the subterranean holding tanks. During the construction of an arterial tunnel, Talan miners struck an outcrop of hard, black rock. They were unable to break through this strange substance, which was quite unlike any other they had encountered. After some days, they decided to divert their tunnel to go around it. As they did so, they discovered something very strange. At first, the black wall seemed like a natural formation, but soon they realised they had uncovered a deliberate construction. The initial excavations revealed a huge wall of strange black rock carved over its entire surface with weird, entwined figures. The figures were human-sized, yet not entirely human, possessing a grace and beauty which rendered their grotesquely inscribed cavorting all the more perverse. Giant earth movers were brought in to dig out the layers of sulphur sand in which the wall was buried, and bit by bit, it was slowly and painstakingly exposed to daylight. The Talan soon discovered the wall was not straight, but curved. In fact, part of a huge circle. Carefully, their most skilled technicians worked to uncover the entire thing. A huge, ring-shaped mound, almost half a mile across. It was not until the whole circle was exposed that the disaster happened. With a blast of power, the circle screamed and writhed. Its inert form turned suddenly to moaning flesh. Where before there had been carvings, now there were the creatures themselves, Eldar creatures, yet twisted with an uncanny evil, locked together by some sorcerous bond into a sickening embrace of depraved passion. Within the dark circle itself, blackness boiled and stars wheeled, Stars that belonged in another part of the galaxy altogether. 
in the dark library of the Elder. A custodian shivered as he felt an unaccustomed surge of power. Adrift from time and space, his mind searched the endless strands of probabilities and found the thread that led to Talan. After so long, it had been discovered. The Cursus of Algonar, legend of evil from before the fall, vortex of unimaginable power, one of the three mythical gateways of the gods. His mind shifted into synchronicity with the farseers of his race, tracing the paths that linked his mind to the craft worlds of the Eldar. When that knowledge touched the farseers, the avatars of Cain would wake, and Cain would recognize the work of his ancient destroyer, Slanesh, Bane of the Eldar, Prince of the Chaos Gods. The Eldar would strike from the skies without warning or explanation. To the Talan, it was an unwarranted act of aggression. Little could they imagine that the fate of the entire Eldar race was bound up with their strange discovery. To the Eldar, there was no time for explanation or discussion. They couldn't know whether the Talan were in league with Chaos or whether the fierce desert people were unwitting pawns in the Dark God's game. As far as they were concerned, the only option was to attack, to destroy the Cursors if they could, before it was too late. The Talan fought back with characteristic ferocity. Years of living upon the burning sulphur deserts had honed them into resilient fighters. To the Eldar, the deserts were an unknown quantity. Even the hardy aspect warriors died under the heat of the sun, whilst the Eldar guardians fell to the lightning raids of the human fighters. But the Eldar did not give up. They could not afford to abandon their attack. The survival of the galaxy depended on it. But it was already too late. The gateway that was the Cursus grew in power by the minute. Its screams and wails filled the desert as the dark light brightened and fluxed from its core. Lights and stars swirled and clashed. Fountains of spinning incandescence spat into the night sky. The laughter of gods rebounded across the sulphur dunes and Eldar and humans alike shuddered in terror. From the Cursus poured the minions of chaos. There were things indescribable to men, things that awakened primal terror in the Eldar hearts, horrors of slime and flame that cackled and bounded into battle, transparent bodies of pure energy dividing and reuniting in a cascade of colours, vile fleshy things that pulsed with inner light and power and sucked at the air with poisonous lips. Long-legged abominations carried slender, elegant creatures upon their backs, beautiful and yet sickening to look upon. It was as if all the demons of hell had fallen upon Talan. The human commander called a truce and hurried to the Eldar lines, where the alien seers sat waiting. Knowledge had finally opened their eyes. The rune stones lay cast upon the desert floor. Hope in union was predicted. Division would lead to damnation, darkness and death. With their fates so clearly predicted, the Eldar and Talan joined forces. The two races fell back before the Chaos onslaught. Many were caught and destroyed in the early confusion, but the Chaos advance was slowed by the merciless hit-and-run tactics of the Desert Raiders. Humans led Eldar jet-bike riders into the attack, and soon the Talan and Eldar were able to regroup. As the demon hordes advanced beyond the Cursus, their power waned, as if they were dependent upon its proximity for their power. 
And so it was, for the tendrils of chaos, though long, are very tenuous, and only bloodletting and victory can sustain the link between the dark gods and their minions. With skill and cunning, the Talan drew out the chaos battle lines. Choosing their targets carefully, the Talan launched one attack after another, always retreating before the chaos hordes could turn to meet their fire. It was a tactic calculated to drain the power of the horde, and it worked better than even the wily sons of the sulphur desert could have hoped. The Eldar seers saw the runes change, saw the opportunity develop. The demons were fading fast, their glittering bodies growing ever more transparent, their cries ever weaker. Now was the time to hit them hard. With a furious charge, the Eldar and Talan threw their remaining strength against the gibbering horde. It was a last effort that would result in ultimate victory or utter defeat. The Chaos Horde shuddered, and the bodies of the demons seemed to fade and dull. The crackle of energy died, and the spark of life vaporised into the oily air. Many lay dead, human and elder, gored by monstrous claws, crushed by the sensual caress of a poisoned tongue, or torn apart by razor-sharp teeth. Many Eldar waystones were collected from the field, and many Talan taken back to their domes, to surrender the water from their bodies to the hydro tanks. But it was victory nonetheless. Once the Eldar had departed in peace, and the people of both races had exchanged their promises of friendship, the Talan returned to the Cursus. They found the black stone cold and lifeless once more, just as it was when they had first uncovered it. However, they knew now that the stone was not dead, but merely sleeping awaiting its time again, waiting for the call of its evil masters. The Talan buried the curses beneath the sulfur sands once more, and placed within its circle the mysterious devices that the Eldar had given them for that purpose. Then they sealed the surface with plaskrete and turned their backs upon it. Attila The world of Attila is somewhat smaller than Earth, and has a single continent which covers almost half its surface. The centre of this massive landmass is prone to such extremes of temperature that it remains uninhabited, a baking desert in the summer which becomes a sub-zero sea of sand and snow over winter. Between the deathlands of the continental centre and the coasts is a belt of rich savanna, thousands of miles deep, punctuated with mountain chains, mighty inland lakes and vast rivers. Only towards the coastal edges does the grassland give way to verdant forests, encircling the entire continent with a thin arboreal band. Humans colonised Attila many thousands of years ago and must have adopted the nomadic life almost immediately. The original landing site of Kanasan has grown into a, the only city on the whole planet. The bustling metropolis is a gathering place for the tribes of Attila and the centre of its government. The bulk of the population are nomads who subsist from their herds of ovagors, gigantic shaggy and savage animals native to the world of Attila. Their rich flesh and dark blood form the basic subsistence diet of the tribes. When the summer comes, the Attilans drive their herds towards the heart of the continent, following the spring thaw and new-grown pasture. In winter, 
they retreat towards the outer grasslands abutting the coasts. And here, their animals find enough grazing to keep them alive until the years turn. The Imperium recruits some of the most ferocious mounted warriors from this barbaric world. Attilan regiments of Imperial Guard Rough Riders have fought all over the galaxy in many different theatres of war. On worlds thousands of light years from Attila, the image of the scarred tribesman, resplendent in his crude furs and bedecked with beads and rings, is as familiar as it is frightening. The Attilian warrior's prowess is founded upon a tradition of fighting amongst themselves. For the tribes of Attila respect only power, and a king must be prepared to demonstrate his might to doubting rivals. When a lord of the Attilans defeats an enemy, he cuts off the beaten man's head and his artificers turn the skull into a drinking cup as a permanent symbol of his victory. A tribal chieftain may have many such skulls, bound with ornately carved gold or inlaid with silver, embellished with rubies and sapphires of immense worth. The king of Kanasan and lord of Attila is the most mighty of all, acknowledged as the king of a thousand skulls. The Attilans are said to be born in the saddle, for they are amongst the greatest horsemen in the galaxy. The horses they prefer are thick-set beasts, ill-tempered and likely to bite or kick anyone unwise enough to give them the chance to do so. The riders depend upon their horses a great deal, and value them more highly than gold. In adversity, a warrior will draw off some of the animal's blood and drink it to sustain himself. In this way, Attilans can live without food or water for many days, enabling them to operate deep behind enemy lines without supplies. Characteristic features of an Attilan warrior are the scars that he bears upon his cheeks, long knife cuts of white tissue which stand out against his weather-beaten skin. These marks are cut into his cheeks as a young man, and ashes from the campfire are rubbed into the wounds so that they leave deep and prominent scars. Attilans tend to wear their hair in long, unkempt braids, or long and matted. They do not wash themselves or clean their clothes, believing that to do so would affront the spirits of water with which they superstitiously people their land. This tradition has proven hard to break, despite the considerable efforts of the Adeptus Ministorum preachers and the barely tolerated mission in Kanasan. Indeed, it is sometimes said that the stench of an Attilan is as powerful a weapon as his hunting lance. Well, there we go. Some classic lore for some classic regiments. I hope you enjoyed that. This is the foundational text for these regiments. And I know they haven't really been in production for a long time and they're quite rare to see these days. But hopefully GDW comes back with them. You know, obviously the Jungle Fighters a lot more common than the other ones. But, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes with that. Because they're definitely going to bring back the Katachans. And it is Katachan. If you're saying it the other way, you're wrong. But uh, they are bringing the Jungle Fighters back. So... You know, we'll just have to see whether they bring back the others. It'd be good to see the other regiments come back, particularly Valhallans, particularly Talan. I mean, they still exist within the law, and they're quite prominent within the law, particularly the Valhallans with um, the Kane series. Less so the Mordians, you hear of them less, but they do still pop up. So they're still there, it's not like they've been squatted or anything. I mean, even the squats haven't been squatted anymore. It's just a case of what GW are going to do with them. And they definitely need to replace the Imperial Guard sort of range at the minute because uh, I mean KD is dead so 
We need to do. We need to know what's going on with the Cadian regiments as well. I'll probably do a video on that, just discussing that actually in the not too distant future. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, thank you all very much for watching. Thank you to everybody supporting the channel. You can see your names here as a, as I as I ramble. And uh, if you did like the video, and if you are not subscribed, please do. Oh, I've said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it in one take. We're doing this all in one take. Please like the video if you haven't liked it already. I'd appreciate that. That really helps. Also, subscribe if you're not subscribed. That really helps as well. And it keeps you up to date with all of the videos I'm bringing out in the future. <laughs> Hit the bell as well to stay notified because that sometimes works. But uh, let me know in the comments uh, what you think as well. Anyway, I'll see you later. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.